That was the voice of tenor Everett McCorvey, singing La Danza by Giacomo Rossini. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Everett McCorvey isn't just a first-rate operatic tenor. He's also professor of voice and the director of opera at the University of Kentucky, as well as the founder and music director of the American Spiritual Ensemble. And in case that isn't busy enough, Everett is also vice chairman of the Kentucky Arts Council and serves on the board of the National Association of State Arts Agencies. Somehow, in the midst of his very hectic schedule, Everett McCorvey found the time to talk to me about opera and African-American spirituals. I began our conversation by asking what first drew him to music. What drew me to music? Well, when I was uh, in second grade, I guess, I lived in Montgomery, Alabama, and I grew up in Montgomery, Alabama during the Civil Rights Movement, and it was before integration. And so... Most of the uh, African-American students who wanted to attend college went to an African-American college of some sort. Well, there's one in Alabama, in Montgomery, called Alabama State, at that time, Alabama State Teachers College. And, uh, And we used to keep boys who went to Alabama State. We had rooms in the back of our house. We had three rooms, and we had twin beds in each room, and we kept six young men who were in school, undergraduate school, at Alabama State, which was the custom in a lot of these cities because they had dormitories, but not many. And it was a, a community effort when people were going, attempting to go to college. Well, one of the young men uh, played the trumpet, and he was in the band at Alabama State. And I remember coming home one day, and he was practicing the trumpet in his room. And I thought it was the sweetest music I had ever heard in my life. And so I talked to my dad, and I said, Dad, I would really love to play that instrument and learn how to play. So my dad said, okay. And uh, so he took me up to the local uh, black high school, which happened to be about a block from our home talked to the band director there and scheduled a time for me to have a lesson on a trumpet and he took me down to the store and we rented a trumpet and uh, so I guess about a week later I went up for my trumpet lesson and it was a life-changing experience for both of us and I'll tell you why uh, I had a trumpet lesson with the band director and he died the next day <laughs> That's why I say it's life-changing. <laughs> you can't make that up. No, you can't make that up. And uh, But I still love the trumpet, and so in the third grade, uh, I was in the high school band, and I was the only elementary school kid in the high school band playing trumpet. And so that, uh, that was the start of my relationship with music. I sung in choir and in, in church and done things like that, but uh, when I heard that trumpet, I thought, that's beautiful. 
and I wanted to be a part of that. But you moved to voice. Yes, I did. Uh, when I, um, I sang in the choir at my church, and uh, when I went to college, by the time I went to college, I changed from trumpet to baritone horn. And I auditioned uh, at the University of Alabama on my baritone horn, and I also say, and by the way, I sing. And the man who heard my uh, audition, my singing audition, was the voice teacher for Jim Neighbors. And I don't know if you remember Jim Neighbors, Gomer Pyle. And uh, his name was Bill Stevens. I'll never forget it. Anyway, he talked me into pursuing a career as a singer. He said, son, baritone players are a dime a dozen, but singers. <laughs> and, uh, and so I decided to go to the University of Alabama and major in voice. And that started the journey. It's a journey that has taken so many different roads for you, Everett. In preparing for this interview, I looked at my colleague and I said, I don't see how he sleeps. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a lot of different activities going on, and I love them all. Uh, I'm currently involved in a project of, um, I'm the executive producer of the opening and closing ceremonies of the Alltech FEI World Equestrian Games, which is the largest equestrian event ever to happen in this country. So it's, it's a busy uh, time right now. It sure is. You you still perform. Yes, I do. How did you add teaching and yes. then yes. administering yes. a yes. very prestigious yes. musical program yes. at a university? Yes. Well, it's all having a great staff, and I think that's where it, where it starts. I came to the university to teach voice, actually, but I thought— uh, And I that noticed, was back in 91. That was in 1991, and— um, but the, the director of the school at the time said, I would like to have an international program in voice. And, and so I made some suggestions in terms of how we might uh, do that. And one of them was that we had to have a larger staff and we had to produce quality opera. And so um, in 91, I, I took over the opera program around 1994, and we had a $20,000 loan that we had to give back to the university at the end of each year to produce opera. And, uh, well, we'll fast forward now a few years, and now our endowment for opera is about $5 million, and our, our budget for opera is about a million dollars a year, which is amazing for uh, a public land-grant uh, institution. Lexington is a wonderful place to live. They really support the arts. We've had the great fortune of having some generous donors to endow our program, and uh, we've been able to uh, create quite an exciting um, program for opera. Well, I want to talk about that because with all due respect to Lexington, mm -hmm. yes. I think of horses. Yes. I think of basketball. That's it. And bourbon. And bourbon. <laughs> and I am completely owning that that's yes. my ignorance. Yes. But you were also pretty smart in looking at Kentucky yes. and Lexington's love of sports yes, and yes. thinking, how can I model this? Well, Talk that's ex that. exactly right. One of the first things I did when I came to Lexington was the, the president at the time appointed me to the athletic board. And I joined the athletic board, and I really learned so much about how business is done at a university. And the athletic board was its own entity, and it worked within the, the university and and so that gave me the idea that I should create a society, a group that's similar to the Athletic Association. 
And so I was on that board for, I don't know, four or five years. And uh, But during the time, I decided to create a board called the Lexington Opera Society. And uh, there was a, a small opera company in town called Opera of Central Kentucky. And and they weren't doing very well, and they were really surviving pretty much by uh, the work that we were doing at the university, using our staff, our students. And so I went to the board and I said, why don't we collaborate and figure out how we can take the best of what Opera Central Kentucky has and the best of what UK Opera offers and put it together. I found a lot of resistance, but people uh, eventually decided to uh, to do that. And I changed the name. I, I created the Lexington Opera Society. And so it's a 5013C uh, organization. And uh, it does not produce opera, but what it does is it um, promotes opera in central Kentucky, primarily through the productions at UK Opera Theater. And so this was a 33-member board. I, uh, I personally chose the 33 people on the board. They have um, each year, they give $1,000 to be on the board. So we had a budget of $33,000 to work with. And so this board became the fundraiser board and the friend raiser board for the opera program. And so it's a town and gown collaboration. They don't make decisions in terms of the productions or anything like that for uh, the opera program. But they are our cheerleaders in the community and they go out and they help us fundraise and they help us make people aware. And so it's probably now, the, the board's still 33, but we have a Bravo society that's like the guild and that's about a 400 member organization and so now they they help us raise oh, oh gosh they probably contribute in time and money over a hundred thousand dollars a year to the cause of the opera opera program and so that's what's helped us to create the awareness of opera in the community i just followed the athletic tradition and it worked for athletics and i thought well why not uh, make it work for opera? So even at the basketball games, we have opera singers sing, and, and basketball is definitely the religion. And uh, and yes, we are proud that hopefully we're going to have five first-round draft picks. <laughs> but we've joined in that model. And so now when there are athletic events, our singers sing. When there are large events in the city, our singers uh, participate. Uh, I'm on a lot of boards in the city. And I must say I learned that from Charles Nelson Riley, who the opera fans will know was a great opera fan when he was alive. And one of my jobs through the NEA was to, I went around the country doing on-site evaluations for young artist programs. And one of my on-site evaluations was in Chicago at the uh, Chicago Opera, uh, Lyric Opera when that day that I was there, Charles Nelson Riley happened to be there working with the opera singers. And something he said really changed my life. He said, if it's important to you, then it's your job to make sure that it's important to them, to everybody. And he was telling that to the opera singers in the Young Artists Program. He says, make it important. If it's important to you, then make it your job to make it important to them. And so that's something that I do in Lexington. When I'm, I'm on, oh gosh, five or six of the boards and, and I find out what they're doing and I get involved in what they're doing 
and then I encourage them to get involved in what I'm doing. So it's a reciprocal relationship. It's a reciprocal, it, I mean, and rela- absolutely. underlying relationship. Absolutely. It's a reciprocal relationship, and it is a relationship. And so I go to them first, and I engage in their activity. So it's very easy for them then to engage in my activity because I've already participated in, in theirs. And so it's a great relationship that we've built in the city. And it's it's quite exciting, and the entire city has taken ownership of the program. Well, you had a world premiere there, River of Time. That's right. During the Abraham Lincoln celebration, of course, uh, Lincoln was from Kentucky, and we felt it important to make sure that um, Kentucky celebrated Lincoln along with the rest of the nation. And so we had several major Lincoln events. One was uh, a premiere of an opera, River of Time, the, the boyhood life of Abraham Lincoln and the influences that made him the man that he became. Very successful. Uh, we also brought a very big Lincoln program to the Kennedy Center called Our Lincoln, and we brought about 350 musicians from uh, Lexington and had a huge celebration at uh, the Kennedy Center. And I'm very happy to say that my professional group, the American Spiritual Ensemble, gave a citywide concert in Gettysburg on Abraham Lincoln's actual 200th birthday. And that was really uh, exciting. Can we talk very briefly about the formation of the American Uh, Spiritual Ensemble? Yes. And I want to begin by asking you Uh what the difference is between spirituals and gospel, because it's often confused. And thank you for for recognizing that difference, because a lot of people, uh, even in this country and in other countries, don't recognize the difference. But uh, there is a difference. The spirituals are the folk songs of the the American Negro slaves. And from the spirituals, many sorts of music and art forms grew. But when the slaves came over, they were not allowed to bring their instruments. They only had their voices. And so when they would work in the fields or when they would meet privately, they would sing. And the slave masters did allow them in some cases to go to their churches and sit in the back or whatever because they had to assimilate the ways of their slave masters. And so they took the music, the rhythms of their culture, and combined it with the music that they heard in America, and they created this new music called the spirituals. And so from spirituals grew all sorts of music. And when you think of gospel music, really, you have to go to the 20th century. In the 1930s and 40s, Thomas Dorsey, who's many in many instances is called the father of gospel music, he was a, a blues musician. He played in the clubs and he he played the more popular music. And then at one point, he was asked to play in church, and he took some of the the music that he had been playing in the clubs and brought it into the church. Well, the the church members called it the devil's music. They didn't like it at all. All these blues chords and these popular chords, and then they would put in, you know, a, a, a religious text. But the minister noticed that all of a sudden the young people were starting to come back to church, and so the minister sort of liked it. And so really gospel music grew out of the blues and the spiritual tradition that had already been established. But the spirituals were the mother music. The spirituals is where it all started. The late 1800s, uh, the 
African-Americans who wanted to learn how to write this music down, of course, could not go to colleges. They couldn't go to conservatories. And so it was really Antonine de Borjac who came over in 1890 to head a music school in Washington. It's no longer there. But uh, de Borjac came over to head this music school, and he was one of the first people to allow uh, African-Americans, Negroes, to attend this conservatory. And Dvorak wrote his, probably his most famous piece, the New World Symphony, when he was in this country. And he said, in the preface to the New World Symphony, he says, in the music of the Negroes and the Native Americans, you have all that is needed to create an entirely new school of music. And that was the first time that the melodies of the Negroes were recognized. And it took a European composer coming over to recognize these melodies. And his most famous student was a man by the name of Henry uh, T. Burley. And uh, Henry Burley was um, a, a bass baritone, but they learned from each other. Burley taught him all of the wonderful melodies of the Negro slaves. And Dvorak taught Burley how to write all of this down so that then it could be there for uh, posterity. Let me ask you, because uh-huh. I think of the music uh the civil rights era. Yes. Spirituals. As spirituals. Spirituals, okay. yeah. Yeah, those are, and, and that was the other thing about spirituals that was so amazing is that they had the ability to sort of reinvent themselves as the times warranted. It. And so you had the spirituals that brought people through slavery. Then you had the spirituals that brought people through the civil rights movement. You had spirituals being sung even during the Obama elections. And if you, look, if you go back and listen to the prayer of Joseph Lowry that was at the end of the Obama inauguration, they are all spirituals. And it was amazing how he brought it all front and center by repeating a prayer that was all of these spirituals. And, and I happened to be at the inauguration. And I'm telling you, when I heard him do that, it was just, uh, it was something that I'll never forget. Yeah, I was very, very pleased yeah, that yeah, jo- yeah. Joseph Lowry was honored in that yes, way. Yes, that's exactly right. And used the platform. And really used the like. platform so well yeah. and and to celebrate these wonderful melodies. So you formed an ensemble. Yes. How, how many years? 15? 15 years ago, and the American Spiritual Ensemble, they're comprised of all opera singers, and uh, they live all over the country, and when it's time to perform, they all fly into Lexington. And we rehearse there, and then we go to parts unknown. And basically, when I started the group 15 years ago, I just called 20 of my friends and said, hey, I I think I'm going to start a group to celebrate the Negro spirituals because I realized that people were not aware of the difference between spirituals and gospel music and that these great Negro melodies were being lost and being clumped into a larger category of gospel music when they had their own and deserved their own identity. And so we started the um, group, and I have been amazed and honored at the the number of singers that have traveled through our group in the 15 years. Lawrence Brownlee, uh, Angela Brown, uh, Karen Slack, many of the performers, African-American performers who are on the world stage today, many of them came through the American Spiritual Ensemble on their 
way up. And Angela Brown, for instance, still calls me and say, okay, I'm, I'm ready whenever I'm available. I'd love to sing with the group. And uh, we travel all over the world. And I mean, it's been very exciting to um, uh, celebrate these songs and to help keep this tradition alive. Well, let me ask you, and, and in some ways this is a completely unfair question, but you sing opera, yes. you sing spirituals. Uh-huh. What are the differences and what are the similarities? Well, see, that's a very good question because if you think about singing and the history of singing, everyone who wanted to sing took voice. If you think about amplified sound, that's another 20th century phenomenon. Before then, people had to study voice if they were in any sort of career that required that their, that their voice needed to project ministers, lawyers, professional speakers. And so with the advent of the microphone, then what happened is that people lost that ability to do that. But when the spirituals were being sung, there was no microphone. And so the fact that these opera singers who have trained their voices and are able to sing it with no microphone are singing these spirituals is just an amazing experience. A lot of young singers, yes, particularly. Yes, I do. What do you think is important in training a young voice or in, in opening up a young voice to opera? Yes, I think probably what happens in young singers, what we have to work on a lot, is helping them to understand their bodies, learning how to breathe. I call them uh, singing athletes. They are professional athletes. Their area just happens to be singing. But they have to learn their bodies and how to breathe and, and how to use their bodies to learn how to project the sound. That's a biggie. The other thing that we concentrate a lot on for young singers is helping them to be good musicians. And so it's important, especially for young people, if they, if parents see that they have a child that may have an aptitude for singing, it'd be great to get that child in violin lessons to help them to train their ear. That's the, the instrument that I recommend the most. Also help the student to get into piano. Piano is the mother instrument, and uh, every performing artist has a relationship or some with the piano. And so we get them started there so that then when they come to college, they have some of the tools that they'll need to be able to grow as a a singer and as a musician. Something that I do that is very important to me is I talk about training the complete singer, the complete artist. And, And what does that mean? That means in addition to being a good singer and a good musician, You must be a good colleague, and you have to be a giving colleague, not a taker, but a giver. And so people who are not givers don't do well at the University of Kentucky. (laughs) You know, it's interesting that you say that because my next question to you was going to be the University of Kentucky has not just a 
such a well-regarded school, mm-hmm. but it's so companionable. Yes, yes, and that's that's by design. Uh, we feel that we are creating citizens, contributing citizens to society. And how can we be a giving, contributing citizen to society? And our medium happens to be opera and, and vocal music, but we want people who are going to give to their community, not just take from their community. And so in that sense, when we bring people to the University of Kentucky, we train the entire person. And yes, you can have a tremendous talent and be a tremendous citizen and a giver. You don't have to be a taker. And that's something that's, um, that's something that's really important to me. And I think that it has helped me in my career. And I want to train other young people as they come in and are trained and move to cities around the world that they get involved in their communities so that our art form won't die and won't be stuck off in some little corner because we are not contributing in the rest of the fabric of the city and the community. But when we get front and center and contribute to the fabric of the community, then when we ask them to come to our events, they will do so gladly and willingly. That's so wise. It's so obvious. It's so true. Everett, it was such a pleasure. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. And Oh, on the contrary, thank you for taking the time to talk to me. I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you. Thank you. That was Tenor, Director of Opera at the University of Kentucky and Music Director of the American Spiritual Ensemble, Everett McCorvey. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the assistant producer. We open the program with La Danza by Giacomo Rossini, sung by Everett McCorvey. And we heard the traditional spiritual Amen, sung by Everett McCorvey and the American Spiritual Ensemble. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at www.arts.gov. Next week, documentary filmmaker Ken Burns. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog. Or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.